0: Okay, page 7 there, um, 14 through 21. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The word of the Lord. We are thankful for your word, O God. We are humbled by the opportunity to open our lives to the instruction of your word. We humbly submit ourselves to your correction, to your conviction, to whatever you have for us in these few minutes together. Um, Speak, Lord, through your Spirit to our hearts and to our lives. Uh, Convict us, comfort us, give us all that we need from your Word. I pray that you would sustain me um, as your preacher after a a long day. uh, Give me renewed energy and uh, clarity of thought and uh, sensitivity to your Spirit and courage and humility and and all that I need. Um, Grant it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, um, <clears throat> so so this is so verse thirteen, um, which is not printed here in your order of worship. Um, but but let me let me explain kind of the flow here with with First Peter one, and the the first twelve verses one through twelve um, are the promises that Peter has um, for exiles. He he opens up. His letter with just as, as, as we've been talking um, um, quite a bit here, he, he opens his letter up with just um, glorious promise and hope and, and um, all of these uh, blessings that flow uh, from, from God. And then in verse 13, what he does is he transitions um, his teaching into application. Um, verse 13 says this: Therefore, um, so it's, it's saying because of all of that promise, because of all of that glory that are shared. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And essentially, what he's saying in that verse, in that transitional verse. Is um, here. I have I have outlined all of this glory and promise and hope. Now I want you to live. I want you to set your minds fully upon the coming of that hope that is coming, and I want you to set your minds upon that. And and what that verse does is it transitions and sets the scene for application. Much of First Peter, much of the letter of First Peter is actually um, a lot of practical. Uh, application for our lives, and, and we have officially transitioned toward that. And what this week is going to do is, is it's going to serve as kind of the content of the application. So in verse 13, he transitions with kind of a principled statement of application. Therefore, this is how you're supposed to uh, have your mind set. And then in these verses 14 through 21, he is going to kind of fill out the content of application. What does it look like? look like, to have a mindset that is fully set upon the grace that we brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ, what does that mean here in our lives? Um, and that's that's what we're going to look at. And the way Peter is going to answer that question is by invoking um, that unique Christian promise of God as our Father. Um, we, we take it for granted, we take it for granted that we call uh, the transcendent God, of the universe, our Father. Uh, but that is that is what we say. That is our claim. That is utterly different than any other religious claim. Um, and typically, we ponder the unique blessings of that. Um, and, and the blessings are many, the fact that we get to call our Creator our Father. And we, and we, and we love to meditate upon what that means and, and what that means for us and the blessings of that. But this also comes with unique responsibilities. And that is how Peter is going to come at application this evening. All the glorious promise of 1 through 12 has turned God into our Father. The gospel has turned God now into our Father. And in this we rejoice, but in this there is also great responsibility. I was, uh, I was going back and forth with one of my sons this week uh, over something. I can't even remember what it, what it was now. We were, we were kind of going back and forth over it, and... Um, and finally, I just said, look, you know, I did the whole, it doesn't matter, I'm not arguing with you, um, I'm your father, end of discussion, you have to just do what I say. And, and he looked at his little infant uh, brother, just a month-old brother, and he said, oh, you have no idea what's coming. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: and, you know, <laughs> uh, as it to say, look, look, it, it, I, I get what he's saying. It, it's a blessing to be a child in this family, to receive love and care and nurture of being in this family. But it turns into responsibility. Um, it, it, it comes with responsibilities, um, expectations, demands. And for weeks we've been meditating on the blessings of being a child. Of our Heavenly Father. But now we're going to look at the responsibilities, the expectations of being a child of our Heavenly Father. Look at the first few words there, verse 14. As obedient children, the gospel of God as our Father does not negate obedience. It changes the nature of obedience. We don't obey to get a transcendent God to approve of us. We already have that. We have His approval. We have His love. We have His acceptance. That's fundamental to the gospel. But that doesn't mean that we do not obey. Now we obey in a different way because God is our Father. And that comes with responsibilities and expectations. And I'm going to give us three from the text this evening. We imitate our Father, we fear our Father, and we trust our Father. Okay, let's look at it. We imitate our Father. So, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, listen, when Peter speaks of holiness here, the concept of holiness, I don't want you to have in mind just kind of the the righteous perfection of God. Of course, that is true. That's part of what it means that God is holy. And of course, that should be our ultimate aim. But but if that is the only way you conceptualize holiness, it will become a paralyzing thing that is unattainable. The word holy uh, literally means set apart. And that is the concept that Peter is emphasizing here. Peter is calling us to strive for a consecrated, um, set-apart, holy life. Stating it even more plainly, Peter is saying you need to be different. You need to be different. But it isn't just any kind of difference. It is a difference defined by our Father. It is a difference rooted in the fact that we have God now as our Father. He says, as he who called you... that." That means called you as his own, called you as his son, called you as his daughters. As he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy. Now, the reason why that is important is because we don't want to misinterpret holiness as just difference for difference sake. Um, We don't define ourselves as a people who are just different from the world around us. We define ourselves as a people who are like our father which will make us different. But that distinction makes all the difference in the way we view holiness. Too often, our holiness is defined by, we define our holiness as by what not to do. We, we don't do those things. We don't believe those things. And what this only, this does is it leads to kind of a self-righteous uh, pietism. But holiness is not a negative setting apart. We're not like them. Holiness is a positive setting apart. We're like our Father. And, and, and I'm not just splitting hairs here. That actually really matters. This distinction makes a huge difference because what it does is it raises our expectations of what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be holy. If holiness is merely don't be like the world, be different than the world, then what this does is it produces a very shallow vision and standard of holiness is it really hard to outperform this world's ethic is that difficult when you consider the um just the corruption of the world around us to be different than the world is not saying much if you live a nice decent well-mannered reasonably moral life then you have outperformed the normative habits of this world congratulations you're holy that was tough But what if holiness is defined not negatively as don't be like them, but positively as imitate your heavenly Father? What if holiness is as he who called you is holy, you are to be holy? What if holiness is be holy as I am holy, thus saith the Lord? Now that changes things. No longer is it enough to just not commit adultery, which so much of our world is in the habit of doing, it's not just enough to just not do that bad thing. We have to get concerned about the lusts of our hearts. That's a direct quote from Jesus, right? It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's no longer is enough, just don't kill somebody. It's do you have anger in your heart towards your brother? This, this, this gets down to the depths of motivations and intentions of our hearts. Suddenly the call to holiness gets really personal. We are no longer fixated on their conduct, but on our conduct and the way it falls short of our Heavenly Father. We aren't concerned about outperforming the competition around us. We are concerned about the ways in which we fail to imitate our Father. That's why Peter does, speaks of holiness not as separation from something out there, but notice as separation set apart, consecrated from ourselves. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the what? The passions of your former ignorance. That former ignorance is you before Jesus, your life before Jesus. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He's saying, holiest man, you look at you specifically those besetting passions that belong to your former ways, those those lingering passions of the old self, your issues, your struggles, your habits, your idols, be not conformed to you, but instead imitate your father. So, first calling of children is to imitate our Father. Second application we see here. Fear your Father, which that may come as a strange, that may sound strange to you, but it's there. Continue on, verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. And that's not talking about fearing The world of your exile, the persecuting world around us, that's talking about fearing your Father. Now, as we get into this application, I'm going to tell you up front that it is going to press. It's going to press up against some of our uh, most beloved theological truths. But honestly, we need that, Um, or at least I need that, and I think you probably need it too. Let me, let me state what we believe, what this verse is, is not saying. We believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To use the language of judgment, because that's what Peter is using here, he says our Father judges impartially. To use that language, we believe that we are justified before this God and declared righteous. You who have faith in Christ need not fear the judgment seat of God. This is at the core of our faith. And we will never waver from this doctrine. And this verse is not contradicting that. But the application of verse 17 is, you should fear your father. And we say, doesn't the gospel render that fear of God obsolete? And I would say, yeah, in one sense, yes. But in another sense, absolutely not. What it does is it transforms the nature of fear from terror before a holy, just God to this um, paternal reverence and respect of a God. Those who are not in Christ should be terrified of Almighty God and His coming judgment. Those who are in Christ should revere God, who is now our Father. And it's the word Father in this verse that changes everything. He's saying, your father is the one you are to fear. We all know there is a healthy fear that a child should have toward a father. Um, not a fear of rage or rejection. Um, although I know tragically, maybe that's been experienced for many of you who have suffered through abusive fathers. Anytime, anytime you preach on father, fatherhood of God, you should probably make that caveat that your experiences um, in, this, in this messed up world... Um, you, you might have no concept of what a good father looks like and understand that. Um, but when, when we talk about father here, when we talk about fearing our father here, it's not fearing father like maybe some of you feared your abusive father. This is a healthy fear that, that a child should have. We should not fear the rejection of our fathers, but we should fear our fathers in the sense of honor, respect, reverence, and yes, a healthy fear of his discipline. A child should care most about what his or her father thinks of him or her. A child should obey a father's voice over every other voice in his or her life. A a child should see their father as holding this weight and authority and, and dare I say preeminence in their life. In fact, a father innately does hold preeminence in the life of a child. A father does hold this position in a child's life, which is why failed fatherhood is so devastating to a child. And these are the things that Peter is talking about here. Our God is a perfect father. That's what Peter's emphasizing when he says our Father judges impartially. He always does us right and fair and good. He, he is unlike our earthly fathers, your, your, your broken stories. He is always right, fair, and good to his children. He doesn't harm us with unjust anger or unjust spoiling. Um, instead, he is a perfect father who always treats his children with perfect, perfect fatherhood. But what that means is that God actually is watching and actually does care about your conduct. He is actually a father. He's a perfect father, but he is actually a father, which means he actually does care about your lives, about what you're doing, about your conduct. Now, I know that should go without saying, but I think I need to say it. We tend to think of our relationship with God with this really unhelpful binary of um, either rejected or accepted. Either condemnation or no condemnation, and we we tend to just constantly live and oscillate between um, fear of, of, of condemnation or joy in our acceptance, without getting into the com- to the complexities of what it means to have God as our Father, what that relationship means. So while it is true that there is definitive justification to our salvation, where we are declared forgiven and righteous in Christ. And this is irrevocable. But what our, our justification effectively does is, is adopt us into God's family. And though we will never be, be rejected as His children, He most certainly does care about the conduct of His children. Listen, all I'm trying to say here is that He is watching you. And He is not indifferent to what He sees. We can make our Father proud. We can break His heart. We can disappoint him, whatever language you're going to use there. Our conduct can bring about his discipline. He disciplines the ones he loves. Justification does not render our conduct meaningless. If anything, it raises the stakes of our conduct because we are his children. And he is deeply concerned with the lives of his children. So Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear healthy fear of your father throughout your time of exile. That throughout your time of exile is Peter using a bit of irony. He's, he's talking to exiles whom he knows are deeply burdened by fear, fear of persecution and all these things. And he tells them your, your exile should be marked by fear, but a different kind of fear, fear of your father. So what he's doing is he's changing the location of our fear. Instead of obsessing over the opinion of the world, Fearing the opinion of man, we obsess over the opinion of our Father. Instead of obsessing about what the world is doing to you, we obsess about what our Father wants us to be doing. Instead of obsessing over the state of the world around us, we, we obsess over the state of our relationship with our Father. We go about this time of exile strangely indifferent to the world, but completely fixated upon our Heavenly Father. This is what it means to fear our Father. He is our obsession. His view of us, His thoughts of us, Him watching us, not watching us to get us, but watching us, disciplining us, favoring us. This holds the weight and preeminence in our lives. So we imitate our Father. We fear our Father. And lastly, we trust our Father. Peter follows this command to fear with a very needed reassurance about the nature of the one we are to fear. Uh, Notice the first word there in verse 18. Knowing. That's his connection to his fear command. We fear God knowing something. And, and what is it that we know? Knowing that we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This, this promise is how we are able to fear our Father without ultimate fear. Our fear never turns into dread because we know that our Father has taken away ultimate fear by the precious blood of Christ. But these verses are more than just an encouragement to us. They are intended to challenge us. They're challenging with another application, and the application is this. Where is your trust? Where is your trust in this world? We see this as what He does is He contrasts trust of our Heavenly Father versus our earthly Father's. Again, verse 18. Knowing you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. What, is, uh, what does that mean? What, that, that phrase, ways inherited from your forefathers, was a common one to the audience. And, and it spoke um, not, not just to uh, the ways of your literal uh, biological generational forefathers, but more um, around the beloved... Um, generational, cultural traditions that we have all inherited. Often these were religious traditions, but they didn't have to be. It was a term that spoke to uh, um, cultural discipleship, generational discipleship, life wisdom and resources inherited from our fathers. But Peter calls all of that futile. In fact, he says that they are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Peter sees the religion and wisdom and traditions and discipleship of earthly generational fathers as a bondage that they need to be rescued from by our Heavenly Father. And Peter says that our Father does this not with perishable things such as silver or gold. That's a reference to the inheritance of our generational fathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ. Our Heavenly Father does not offer us silver and gold like our forefathers, but something more precious, the blood of Jesus. Continue on, verse 20. He was foreknown, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Again, this is a contrast. You have inherited generational ways of your forefathers, but your Heavenly Father offers you something that goes back to the foundations of the world. All the way back, He had Jesus for you. So this is all that Peter is doing here. And this is where the challenge will be. He is setting up a contrast between our earthly fathers and our heavenly father. And in so doing, he is challenging us with the issue of trust. Where will you place your trust? Will you trust the ways that you have inherited from your forefathers? Again, that's more than just your dad. It's, it's, it's a cultural generational ways. The, the ways that are common to us. Or will you trust your heavenly father? And that's the challenge we need to wrestle with. Where is your trust? What would be the ways of our forefathers? What, what are these things that we have, um, have been passed down to us? I think of um, the, the whole concept of American individualism and hard work that so, um, makes such, for such a great society and a thriving economy, but a terrible religion. The idea that if you just work hard enough at life, you will, you'll survive. There's, there's no challenge you can't overcome with hard work. This is a, this is a way that has been, we have inherited from our forefathers, and it's a lie. I think of the American dream of prosperity. If you can just accumulate wealth and comfort, you'll be fine. That life is this pursuit of, of more. I think of the American love affair that we have with power. If we can just be strong enough, stronger than the competition, if our military is strong enough, we'll be okay. That we will be saved by chariot and horses. I think of the American ethic of morality. Um, if you just be a good American citizen, a good boy or girl, you'll be okay. This, this notion of just kind of Southern culture, uh, be nice and sweet and polite and you'll be okay. I think of America's system of government. If we elect the right people, we'll be okay. This week's a good litmus test for that. If you were either devastated or elated by this week's election, it shows you have this trust in America's democracy. Um, the ways inherited from our forefathers. I could go on and on with these cultural things, but the question that Peter is forcing us into is, is our trust in these cultural trust inherited by our forefathers, or is your trust in your Heavenly Father? Where is your trust? Brothers and sisters, the ways of your forefathers are utterly futile and empty, and they will be proven so in the end. I don't know where you are with with the Lord. Um, I don't know where your trust is, um, but, but, but I can say this. Um, I can say this, and it's been proven over and over and over again, and I bet if I got into your life, um, I can show you this is the case. I don't know where your trust is, but if it is in anything outside of God, our Heavenly Father, it is an empty trust, and it's failing you, or it will fail you. And I think your anxiety is testifying that that is so. Where is your trust? Peter is saying, trust your Heavenly Father alone, for He alone is trustworthy. Notice how Peter closes the section, verse 21. Who through Him, through Jesus, are believers in God who raised Him from the dead. By the way, Peter slips that in because he always does. Um, once again, Peter grounds God's trustworthiness and the resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead, so it's safe to trust Him. But I want you to notice something else that Peter does in verse 21. He changes his language, and that's important. Um, he, he moves away from fatherhood language. It says, "...who through Him are believers in God." Closing, "...so that your faith and hope are in God, your trust is in God." He changes from Father, he changes in the section from Father to God, and that's intentional. You see, it is an amazing promise that God is our Father, but it is an amazing promise that our Father is God. And let us never forget that. The one you trust as your Father is Almighty God. Your trust is secure. Imitate your Father, fear your Father, trust your Father. Because your Father is your God. Let me pray. Help us to be this as a people, Lord. Um, Application sermons like this, um, at least for me, can at times overwhelm because we leave here seeing how much I do fall short of imitating you, of fearing you, of trusting you. Um, But I pray that that would not be the spirit that we leave with. I pray we would know that you are our Father that you love us, that all is well, that there's nothing we can do to ever find your rejection. Everything's okay, so let's leave here to be obedient children, (laughs) to imitate you, to fear you, to trust you. Strengthen these things in our lives. And Lord, as we come to your holy sacrament, I pray you would do just that, Um, that you would feed us, not just to assure our souls, but so that it will do something in our lives. We want to be different, God. We want to be obedient children. And so I pray that you would do that as we partake of this mysterious sacrament that you have promised will bless us. Thank you, God, that you are our Father. We pray in your name as your child. Amen.